This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Lauren Levin, author of the book, Call Me a Woman, On Our Way to Equality and Peace. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, and how you became interested in the project. Oh, thank you, Deidre. Thanks so much for having me here today. It's, uh, I really look forward to being here with you. Um, how did I, a uh, little bit about myself and how I got interested in writing this book. What a question. Um, you know, I think it goes back, it goes so far back. Um, I lost my mom when I was 11. She died when she was 39 of stomach cancer. And, um, you know, as an 11 year old with an amazing mom, it left a, an amazing hole in my life and in my home. And it's really interesting how in my teen years, I started to notice how life outside the, my home, it started, it was, it was matching up to what was inside my home, but it wasn't always that way. In other words, those traditional masculine values that now were present in my home that were kind of leading the way was what I saw everywhere. You know, the boys got more attention in high school. The cheerleaders came to their games, not to ours. I was an athlete all through school, most of school anyway. There was just such differences. I started noticing. And then through school, graduate degree, and my corporate life, it was all the same. It all felt very much the same. And so that kind of kicked off internally, this feeling that, wow, it's, it's different out here, whether, you know, dependent upon your gender, the world responds to you very, very differently. And because of that, there were so many inequities that, you know, come about as a result of that, that I felt the need to write this book after many experiences also in my 20s uh, that I share in the book, first chapter, um, many assault, assaults, sexual assaults in my 20s. And I just felt compelled for years and years write this book. It took me a long time, actually. I, I love these authors that can put books out in about 90 days. This one took me, I have to say, I'm a little embarrassed, but 15 years. <clears throat> and I think it just required a lot of evolution on my part and transformation. But here we are today. And again, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about a subject that's 
so near and dear to my heart and to so many around the world I know. Tell us about the global survey and what they found about the U.S. ranking of the dangers for women. Well, I, you know, I come out of research, uh, market research. And so I was really, I really enjoy looking at data. And so I did spend a fair amount of time and, and that's all in chapter eight, where I compared five global reports and they're pretty, it's pretty amazing to look at the top 20, what I call the top 20 and the, and the bottom 20 countries in the world, you know, uh, comparing each of those um, across five global reports, uh, the Peace Index, the Global Gender Gap Report, the Environmental Performance Index, uh, the, uh, the Prosperity Index, and uh, then the World Happiness Report. And when you look at those and see the top 20, the bottom 20 countries, it's pretty, pretty uh, amazing what you'll see uh, in terms of the disparities, in terms of uh, where the United States lies, um, you know, in terms of correlations, there's all kinds of things. And then I, I took a step further and I also laid on top of that countries that have been led by women and then the most dangerous countries to be a woman. So many correlations. I can't speak to it all here today, but it was fascinating. And it is in chapter eight of the book. And you mentioned uh, the Thompson uh, Reuters Foundation study, 2018, uh, United States became the 10th most dangerous country in the world to be a woman, to be female. So that, you know, it's, it's very disturbing and we need to be disturbed by it uh, more than we are as we see every single day missing women, uh, murdered women. This occurs uh, three women a day in this country. I think it's one in three in the UK and 30 a day in Russia. The numbers just are staggering all around the world. So the fact that the country, the United States, is 10th most dangerous, um, let's say it'd be India, number one, you'd have Syria, Afghanistan, countries like this in the top 10, the United States is number 10. So um, my experiences in my 20s, where I was raped my first year of college and then in um, a relationship uh, in my 20s, stalked, beaten, groped repeatedly, whether I was shopping on a subway. You know, the, the incidents went on and on. And so I wasn't surprised by that, although it's still shocking. You know, and as you look at the data in chapter eight, you'll see why that's so very important because it correlates to so many other things you'll see in that chapter. So, you know, it's hard to hear. It's hard to sometimes live in a country that you feel, wow, it's it's dangerous to, just to be, exist. Of course, the most dangerous place for a woman is in her home. So these are things that you know we've created in this country and in the world. And I'm very, very hopeful. And what I hear from people as they read the book is how hopeful it is. We can turn, you know, the, we can turn in a new direction. And with conversations like this and more people becoming aware, I know more people in this country and in the world want it to change. We just don't know where to start. And so I hope that the book offers people a place to begin. What did you find about the Violence Against Women's Act today? Well, you know, it's it's the fact that it's an act is disturbing because, you know, it constantly needs renewal by Congress. And so when it's not being, you know, when it hasn't been uh, passed uh, and, and there's these time lapses, that means women and men, children girls and boys, their lives are terribly disrupted. So the Violence Against Women Act, of course, is very, very important. We're very, very thankful for it. 
However, what we really need is an equal rights amendment um, that covers all the bases here. Um, we need to get women in the Constitution. Right now, the only constitutional right that women have in the United States is the right to vote. And people oftentimes cite the 14th Amendment, but if you know, the 14th Amendment covered all the bases and provided constitutional equality for women, we wouldn't have needed the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. So still today, and I, I'm, I, you know, it's amazing because I started working on the Equal Rights Amendment 50 years ago. Um, well, 50 years ago, yeah, that's close. I'm not quite 70. I'm 66. That sounds so amazing to even say that 70 years old. I've been really, you know, my whole life, I feel like I've, um, notice the inequities in the world, whether related to gender or skin color, always uh, notice those things. And it's been hard to deal with, you know, as a kid even. But in my late teens, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment became very important. So in my 20s, I remember attending a major rally in Springfield, Illinois. I think there were 10,000 of us there. And here we are. So that's 40 something years later. And the Equal Rights Amendment still has not passed in this country. And it's used as kind of a you know, kind of a, a political pawn on a chessboard, you know, uh, women's uh, rights. Um, and we, we just really need to look at women's rights as human rights. And uh, the thing that, and what I, I think I pretty well lay out in the book is that what correlates most to us solving climate change, solving poverty, ending poverty and violence in the world is the equality of women. We are 50% of the world's population. And we, we live oppressed and suppressed and paid less and, and in poverty. That's how our children live. So we need to change course on this sooner than later. And I'm excited really about the people that are talking about this and concerned about it and working on it. But again, in terms of violence, uh, one of the things that's really important in the United States is to put women in the constitution once and for all. Great question, thank you. You, you made this comment in the book, with age comes freedom we never knew as girls. Can you explain that a little bit to the audience? Oh, wow, that's an amazing. Nobody's actually asked me that question, but yeah, I remember writing that. It does. Um, you know, you when we are raised in an unequal society, whether it's gender, race, nationality, religion, whatever, you tend to take on. Um, whatever is being, you know, what you assimilate, you become whatever your surroundings, the water around you is. So I, I remember in corporate life, you know, I was one of very few women in those meetings back there in the day when in my 20s, 30s and 40s, of course, more women as I approached my 40s in my corporate career. But we kind of had to mold and shape ourselves, right, into something we weren't necessarily um, real excited about all the time. We had to get a little tougher. We had to get a little more aggressive oftentimes. Um, less um, emotional, as they say, right? Less feeling when in fact today we know it really, that's what we need to bring into corporate life, bring into government, bring into uh, families more. That's what really has things work out is when we um, connect with each other heart to heart and have conversations and really listen. So with age, I think you can look back and say, yeah, you know, freedom um, really comes from how we feel internally about ourselves and how we are in the world. And I no longer have or feel such pressure on myself to mold and bend and shape myself into something I'm not. 
uh, to, you know, judge myself in terms of how I'm aging or the weight size of my waist or, you know, how I all the wrinkles and things like that. That is not really part of my day and my, my concerns. It really is about feeling just really, you know, happiness and um, living a purposeful life and having conversations like this that have some meaning. And as I look at this next chapter in my life, you know, after living those, the two that I kind of look at is childhood and getting those degrees and then you know, your business life and corporate life and married life and so forth. Um, you know, this is a third chapter where I really am excited about just living, uh, living and being myself, true to myself, as opposed to any norms or, um, you know, anything placed upon me because of gender expectations. I really like to see and something I express in the book is the day that we end all this genderized conversations and you know, uh, telling women we need to write, we, you know, change your last name when you get married and MRS and MIS. These things that denote gender just are irrelevant. They're not needed. Um, we don't need it. It reinforces stereotype, stereotypes and things that really we want to leave, leave behind like corsets and all the things that, you know, we used to do a long time ago to fit into society. Those days are coming to a close. What's really what's really exciting to me is, you know, it's the patriarchy that we live in that is the cause of just about every, any problem we have in the world. Uh, you can go back to it's this patriarchy that we are all kind of tied into in some way. And uh, I'm excited to say it's, it's, it's going down, kicking and screaming, but it's going down. <laughs> That's for darn sure. So, you know, there you, go. you talked about women waiting to be asked out, women waiting for proposals women waiting for him to ask her father or parents. Do, do you see that changing in our culture today? Oh, wow. You know, very, very little. Not as quickly as I would like to see it. I was listening to a young woman not long ago who was waiting for, you know, her um, guy friend to propose to her. And I asked questions about that. And um, we're waiting. We're waiting. I was really excited, though. I saw a show the other day. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they ended uh, with the wedding, with a wedding, and the person in doing the wedding uh, said, you may now kiss the groom. And that's one thing I mentioned in the book. When we start changing things, like you may now kiss the bride, which we've all become accustomed to hearing. I've had so many women say, oh my gosh, I never thought about that. And they said, oh, I'm going to share that with my daughter or my son, you know, or you may now kiss one another. Uh, I now pronounce you married rather than, you know, husband and wife, these kinds of things where we, the husband always goes first, you start to notice, right, the, the wedding ceremony and how we, or how we, you know, um, live together and what we expect from one another based on gender. And you really have to scratch your head almost and say, my goodness, we're still living these things that keeps so many inequities really firmly in place. And in chapter six, the whole chapter really is about habits of inequality that we're plugging into, such as that, changing our name when we get married, waiting for the proposal, waiting to be asked out for the date, you know, putting women, again, women putting themselves in this place and, and men participating, certainly, um, in, in this kind of, you know, uh, life that we live that leaves things up to men. We, we, we just don't want to do that anymore. It's pressure on them they don't need. It's a life they don't need and want to live nor do we. 
So it's time to really get clear on what are the habits of inequality that we're plugging into every day, because this is where real change can occur when you stop plugging in and then you plug into the seven habits of equality that I include a little bit later on in the book. Now, you talked about this newspaper research where women were not featured on the front page. What do you think it would be with the social media? Do you think we're still seeing that today? Well, because social, that's a good question. And I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to the experts there because one thing I'm not an expert in, quite honestly, is social media. It's not something that I'm really, you know, I have embraced to a certain extent because I need to. I'm also a business person and I have uh, plugged in a bit, but I'm not going to say I'm an expert in that area. What I do know is, though, because we all have we have more access to it, I think you'll see much more written by and for women. You know, when women, it's amazing when women are leading the way, whether it's in the home, you know, which we are doing because we're you know, obviously heads of households. We are in the, the office uh, more and more, in government more and more. You see such a transformation occur what's discussed, what's legislated, what's, um, you know, passed, the bills that are passed, the money that's brought back to districts and so forth that women are bringing back to districts and then the, what the money is spent on. Peace accords last so much longer and are much more adhered to when women are at the peace table. Female physicians, you know, have much better results in terms of morbidity and re returning to hospitals uh, after treatment. So this is not something inherent women, it's simply how we're raising girls and boys. And men do so much better in an environment where there's diversity as do all of us. So, um, you know, it's just, it, it, it's a transformation I think we're all looking for. Um, and one that I'm certainly looking forward to seeing in my lifetime. And so I know it's happening in social media. I'm just gonna defer to the experts of social media, those that really are more hands-on. In the newspapers, though, I will point out that that was uh, in my, I'm going to say in my, let me think about that. That was probably 20 something years ago. I did that research and I noticed, I've recently moved out to the East Coast and I noticed in the newspaper here that I get online that the articles repeatedly are much more often to be about men than they are women. As a matter of fact, I went a whole week in the top headlines. There wasn't one story about a woman. And I thought, oh, here we go again. So uh, the online version of the newspaper still treat women and men very, very differently. Oftentimes women are only covered or covered most um, when we are missing and, and stories like that. So um, I know it's a changing thing. Um, uh, and it, it, I'm, I'm excited because as more women are producing and behind cameras and writers and so forth, we're seeing that change. And that's really, really positive. All of our lives improve as that happens. But do you think that there's still going to be a lot of discrimination because women discriminate against other women, you know, in terms of I, I'm jealous of her or I don't want to see her in that position. So I'm not going to put her on the front page or whatever. Well, but we all have versions of that. Again, I'm not sure that, you know, we can, yeah, you can, a lot of times we've talked about the, what do they call that? The mean girls in school, right? You know, again, I'd like to get away from these kinds of conversations because what's really important is that we treat people fairly, justly, we pay them fairly. When we get to an equal egalitarian type society, we see less and less of this. 
So people are kind of fighting for their way forward in the way that they can. Do you know what I'm saying, Deidre? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you know, you, you don't have the power. It's hard to have power. So what power do you have? It's by, it's your verbal, it's your, it's your communication. But when we come from a society that's not patriarchal, where the focus is power over people, dominating others, um, we, I think we'll see that conversation really. There's always going to be that. We're human beings. We're not perfect. Um, but I'd really like to focus on, um, you know, leveling the playing field and really what we need to do to do that. So walking into a meeting, if you see all white people in the meeting, challenge it, change it. Right. If you see all men in the meeting, men, change it, challenge it and change it. Hire, find out how you need to, you know, what hiring techniques, look at pay and so forth. Let's level that playing field and we're all going to be a lot better off. Um, I'm not saying it's a simple thing to do, but, you know, it's so obvious for those of us in the world. And there's more of us certainly in this country and in the world than, you know, would be on the other side of the, the issue here. We believe in equality. We do. We believe in the quality in this country. Matter of fact, most people uh, believe that the Equal Rights Amendment is necessary in this country. Most people also believe it's passed. So we need to change that conversation a little bit because it hasn't passed and we still have work to do and there's still lots of obstacles in the way. But again, these are the kinds of things that create institutionalized sexism or racism. Let's get ourselves in the Constitution. Let's make sure that we've got, um, you know, the police force when women are people of color. Um, you know, this institutionalized racism, sexism that we see that affect people in their everyday lives, their safety. We've got to really start, you know, whittling away at this and eradicate this stuff, because if we don't feel safe and secure, we are going to act up, right? We are going to act up. And so really getting back to, okay, let's create uh, equal everything and forget about gender and race. These are non-issues. It's about the person, right? Absolutely. It's about character. It's about what you're doing, the work you're doing, the difference you're making in your family and in the world and how we raise our children. And when we provide people equal opportunities, game changer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would like to give you an applause for that because in your book, it's positive, positive solutions. And this is what is so needed. You know, in chapter three, you talk about the history. I want you to give the audience um, one person that you really found of interest that provided some insight into today's world. One person that I, well, I'm just going to go to Sojourner, Sojourner Truth because I absolutely love that quote. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes um, that she stated. And I might mention Shirley Chisholm as well because she was quite an amazing person. Um, rep, you know, a Congressperson who ran for uh, pres- the presidency of the White House, um, African American woman. But Sojourner Truth, let's just go back a little bit further. Sojourner Truth, you know, um, whose life was just incredible. Children, you know, taken from her as a slave, um, her family completely, you know, gutted and moved to different areas, which she never really, that I, that I understand uh, from my own reading, uh, really necessary. I don't know that she ever, um, you know, reconnected with all of her family members. Can't even imagine that. But of course, that's how people live then. And when she said, women, if you want your rights, just take them. And that's not the exact words, but it's very succinct that way. And it is in that chapter. 
that you're citing. You know, if you want your rights, just take them. They are there for the taking. You know, and I always felt that in corporate life, I always spoke out about the things that I saw, um, even as a pretty, um, you know, junior person, uh, entry-level person, when you see something, and it's amazing, there were really never any, any repercussions. Things changed around me as I spoke up and challenged what was going on when I saw unequal pay, uh, when I saw disparities, when I was became pregnant and the maternity leave was just ridiculous. And I said, I'll, you know, I was told it was eight weeks and I said, well, I'll be back in three months. And, and that was honored, nothing, you know, happened to me. Um, so again, when, if we want our rights, we need to just start to speak up and, 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 and really take them. They're there for the taking. Now I, I understand that it's not, always that simple. Again, it's difficult to get power when you don't have it, but there is a lot more that we can do. And uh, when we start looking at how we're plugging into those habits of inequality, we can see, wow, that's something on a day-to-day basis I can do. And then that builds our confidence, quite honestly. Now we feel different from the inside out. We approach, I think, life and people very differently. And then Shirley Chisholm, she said something that really um, impacted me many, many years ago when she said gender was the greatest chat was a greater challenge to her than her race. And to a lot of African-American people I've shared that quote with, they're quite, kind of surprised, and I was too. It's not about one being more difficult than the other. They're both difficult um, when you're not white male, particularly in the United States. So what I what I want people to hear from that, it's that intersectionality that, you know, that we all have. We all have a place that we're born, you know, our income, our family issues. We all have race and religion and things like that. There's an intersection between those things that has us be treated very differently in the world. And one thing I do as a health coach, as a heart math coach, coming from the heart and really shifting that place and listening to people and doing less judging and more listening to see, wow, what are those circumstances that person really has endured? What do they live with in their life? Really can explain an awful lot. And, uh, now, from that place, I think we can create much better solutions and a much more caring country and world. You gave us um, seven habits of equality. Tell the listening audience the one that you really enjoy talking about or you think that we're almost there with. Well, I'll just start with the last question. I don't think we're there on any of them or, or close to being there on, on any of them. Um, now, I don't want to sound not hopeful about that. We just have a lot of work to do, Deidre. We have a lot of work. We've come, we've changed lots of things. We have a lot of work to do. And again, it goes back to this patriarchy and how we raise boys. Recent book I read, um, let's see, his name, let's see which book it is. Michael Ian um, Black, A Better Man. He says, we raise boys to go to war and we go to war because of how we raise boys. So when you have And it's not just about going to war because that war is created in the home too when the most dangerous place to be a woman is in her home. So it's that mindset of domination and power and violence and being a hero based on how violent or dominating you are. It's in in our language. It's in our institutions. It's how we raise our children. It's how we get married. Um, It's how we, what we call women. Um, So all the habits of equality, um, you know, starting with raise the kids equally with one identity, a human identity, uh, you know, where our identity is based on love, compassion, and connection. That is vitally important. 
as is how we start the marriage, right? Off on equal footing. Uh, then calling her a woman, you know, the day that we stop calling women girls and ladies and all these other things we do, she's a woman, right? We call men, men pretty much right as they, what, hit 18 or 21, something like that. But for women, still in our 50s, we're called girls, the sales girl. We would never call the salesman a sales boy. I want people to really understand habit of equality number four, which is respect and appreciate kind and caring men. This is so important that men not feel that they have to hide their feelings, not express them, and, and, and not be respected for them. They are. I so respect kind and caring men. And I want that to be just, you know, just across the board in every in every country, in every society, in every family. It is not weak to be kind and caring and loving and cry and express your uh, emotions. It is very strong. It is what creates the strongest amongst us, the most empathic amongst us, the most, you know, um, those that really make the bigger dif differences in the world, the ones that we want to remember are those that are empathic and care. And then, you know, speaking equality, voting equality, you know, and how we age with grace so that women, you know, as I, it's so interesting as I look at pictures of, 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 of men today, like in their 60s and 70s, all the gray hair I see. But when I look at women in their 60s and 70s, I see I'm, I'm one of the very few when it's a group of women, picture of my age group taken that have gray hair. We're not aging with grace. You know, we still expect ourselves to look like 20 and 30 and 40 year old women. And I think when we come to terms with that, that's a losing battle. Maybe we'll spend a little bit more time and energy on things that I think will bring more happiness to us. Um, make sense? Let me ask you that. Let me ask you a question. Does that make sense? So there are seven habits of equality in the book. I, I just feel I'm passionate about all of them. And of course, that first one. And it's actually the work that I'm doing now in a second book, follow-up book, is Parenting with Soul. So how do we raise our children to actually create the kind of world I'd love to see, a peaceful world, which begins with equality? We'll never have peace in the world when people are, right, provides equal access to opportunities and resources. So that number one, that's the starting point, of course, but the others need to happen as well. I hope I answered that question. Yes, you did. Oh, I've, enjoy, I've enjoyed our conversation. I got a chance to meet the woman who wrote this excellent book. And I don't want to take up any more of your time, but can you give us more information about the project that you're working on now, uh, Parents with Soul? Oh, Parenting with Soul. Well, I wrote it many years ago as a course. And my daughter was in a wonderful Montessori school in St. Louis, Missouri. Very diverse and extraordinary uh, first 10 years of her life. And I wrote a course called Parenting with Soul, and I've evolved it. And I really liked it as I look back on it just a, a few months ago. And I thought, wow, this could make a wonderful follow-up. So how do we, what kind of world do we want to leave our children? Well, how do we need to, let's, let's, let's parent with the end game in mind, right? And it's not, the end game is not going to be good if we keep parenting by gender. It's just not with gender, uh, you know, having this role. This, this role that you need to follow and this role that you, the other person needs to follow. So sisters and brothers can live very different lives in the same household. It's really insane, you know? And so the toys that we give our kids, so I discussed that a little bit in the book. You know, it's, it's amazing when you look at the toys and still when I walk into a toy store buying a gift for a, a child, 
they'll ask me what gender I'll always say I'm, you know, it's a seven-year-old child. I'd like something that fosters creative, social, intellectual development. I never mention a gender. So, you know, how do we parent? Let's step back in game in mind, being a peaceful, wonderful, prosperous, abundant life for our kids and communities in the world. Well, how do we need to parent? And that's going to come from the heart. And that's our connection to the soul. And the soul is really what's at the heart of, you know, all of us living a, you know, a peaceful and abundant life. And that's something that's been important to me and something I've been in pursuit of myself is, yeah, I achieved success in my corporate career, but there was stuff lacking. I was missing that inner peace and a sense of freedom that I always wanted in my life. So you know, how do we parent so that our kids from day one really are focusing what's at the, the heart of them, what's what what they're passionate about, what their gifts are, and supporting them in that way, not based on a gender. Thank you so much for this interview. And we look forward to that needed book. Thank you, Deidre. Can I mention how to check out the book? Yes. I appreciate it. It's actually www.callmeawomanbook.com. Had a wonderful Canadian company who did that website for me. So I always love to share it. They did such a beautiful job. And you'll see uh, quotes from the book and uh, lots of people that have read it in their comments. So thank you. Callmeawomanbook.com. Thank you, Deidre. Really enjoyed my time with you today. You've asked some really great, meaningful questions. Thank you.